Hello, patrons, and welcome to a special bonus subscriber episode of 80s All Over. As you are probably well aware by now, there is a very big Spielberg film making the rounds in theaters. We'll be discussing Ready Player One. It seems like a perfect fit for us because so much of the conversation around the film hinges on the value and or the problems with nostalgia. And the movie itself is, of course, built on the hook that these kids are playing this video game where they're trying to find the puzzle that will solve everything and win them the entire Internet. And it's all hinged on 80s movie trivia, basically. That sounds like it's going to be just barrage of pop culture and nothing else. And certainly that was the fear going in. I think there's more to talk about than that. And so, Scott, uh, we not only are going to talk about the movie, we've got a very special guest this week. We've got the screenwriter of the film, Zach Penn. So I think this is going to be our big ready player bonus. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy. Let's just lay a little bit of foundation on what Spielberg means to us. No filmmaker is infallible. No filmmaker is perfect. We are all human beings. Artists are human. And uh, by default, we are going to screw up sometimes. Let's take off the rose-colored glasses. While I do believe that Spielberg is one of the most accomplished and impressive and entertaining filmmakers ever, if you're not necessarily as as enamored with him as we are, then that's fine, too. Well, you don't have to like his movies to acknowledge the fact that he may have one of the single greatest film voices of anybody who's ever shot mainstream film. And that is because he, from a very, very young age, ate and breathed it. He's part of that first generation of film nerds turned filmmakers. And I I really think it's a phenomenon that didn't exist until the 70s. These are guys who grew up steeped in like television reruns of stuff and double features and uh, whatever films they could track down. And they loved movies very, very deeply the way we did. They just had a very different relationship with them. And so by the time they started making movies, they were making movies about movies and their language was driven largely by other films they'd seen. I don't think there's anybody who more crystallized all of those skills than Steven Spielberg. And that's that's why I think out of the guys who were that class of the 1980s, he's the one that has remained a gigantic commercial force every decade since. We could sit here and discuss, as you mentioned, commercialism or or marketing and and cash money. But the bottom line is. If you're a film lover, this is the man who directed Jaws and Close Encounters and Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. and Jurassic Park and Minority Report and Schindler's List. This is a great filmmaker. But I think Children of the 80s, he was one of the first names that we knew. And not just names. It was even when he was executive producing stuff, it was like Harry and the Hendersons and Gremlins and and amazing stories on television and stuff that... We liked, really enjoyed and looked forward back to the future. You know, it's like how many great films do you have to see his name on before as a 16, 17, 18 year old? You're like, damn, that's I like this guy that, you know, like what a body of work. If we can jump into Ready Player One, I I think it does capture uh, bits and pieces of the gee whiz childlike wonder that happens in, in some of his best films. It just to me lacks the emotional oomph that that a close encounters does or even a minority report does uh that it's 90 percent spectacle and 10 percent heart like discussing it now it almost feels like ephemeral like it's almost i gotta see it again to remember stuff i i've been thinking about it and i think here's the problem this is back to the future if they had not recast eric stoltz And I mean that because the kid is the kid's one of the biggest problems. Um, Not only is he, I think, somewhat of a blank. And there's a lot of kids right now who look exactly like this kid. And I just don't get much off of him in the movie. Now, you can argue that that is part of the fact that he's playing the main character. And this is a video game movie. And to some degree, video game avatars are supposed to be blank. But there's not much that I get off of him. And I think beyond that, narratively... There's two more interesting characters who could have been the lead. I think both Artemis and H are more interesting, compelling characters. And I think if either of them had been the lead of the film, simply by nature of what they did in the movie, Artemis is leading a revolution. H is on the road in this van that she's put together. They're 50 steps ahead of Wade at every point in this film. The whole movie is wait for the dumb white kid to catch up. And when he finally does, I guess he does some stuff to help, but... Ultimately, I don't think he drives this movie, and that's a problem. I think Eric Stoltz, the, the 
every conversation I ever had with Bob Gale about the reason they recast was it wasn't light. No matter how good Stoltz was in it, there was a lightness that had to exist in Back to the Future in order to get over certain story points. That's ultimately a movie in which a guy almost boinks his mom. And to make that palatable, there is a playfulness that's required. And when they recast with Michael J. Fox, they got everything they needed. I think this movie lacks that kid at the center of it, which is a Spielberg hallmark. The lead character is kind of a blank slate. Now, part of that is that's seems to be the template for giant budget, you know, global blockbuster movies is that your hero will be a likable, bland white guy so that every uh, they think, so that, you know, the, the general studio thinking is you can uh, insert anything into that character, but it doesn't make the film more interesting. That's for sure. And so what if that's the thinking that thinking's broken and it's done and it's over? That's not the case. That doesn't make us identify with people anymore, and it doesn't in any way serve as the blank template anymore. We have to stop treating that as the default. Well, I agree. And, and this movie's a good example of why, because that character, by making him the default, hampers the film. It's just not interesting with him as the lead. There's 50 things the movie's doing. It is not a clearly defined straight line film like Jurassic Park, where it's dinosaurs and they're real and you're on an island with them. That's pretty fucking simple. This movie, there's 50 different things. You've got the game that you're playing. You've got Sorrento and his whole thing that he's doing. You've got Wade. You've got the revolution. You've got the world itself that they're living in. And even if you just wanted to make a movie about a world where everything is so far run down that we have voluntarily given up living in the real world so that we can just live in a virtual one, that's plenty of meat. And there could have been a whole movie where there was no game involved and it was just about the oasis and about the the life that people are starting to build in there uh, that's obviously it's not a, a big studio blockbuster and a movie like this costs a bazillion dollars a second to make just to pull it all together so they have to have the, the, the big driving action story i think that the nostalgia is the trick of the it's the least important thing in the movie and if you strip it off and make it something totally different it still works as a story. The nostalgia is unimportant. And my kids, when they watch this movie, they're not hung up on what the nostalgia means to them or how bonded they are to each and every single thing on screen. They recognize a lot of stuff and they were having fun, but they were watching the adventure of the kids playing the game in the Oasis. And that was the heart of the film to them. I, I look at it a bit differently and I don't want our listeners to get the wrong idea because I like this movie. I just don't love it. And, and I'm really trying to figure out what the disconnect is there. To me, this movie is three classic movies in one. It's Willy Wonka plus The Last Starfighter plus Who Framed Roger Rabbit. What's interesting here, like Roger Rabbit, I caught a lot of these references and they're tailor made for somebody of my age. OK, and I recognize most of those references and I just thought neat. That's kind of cool. Oh, someone in the video game world is playing as Iron Giant. Someone is playing as Chucky. That's cute. I wasn't clapping my hands and going ape shit for it. And I don't think most people would. I just think it's cute little garnish. To some degree, there's things that they never address. For example, how fucking sad is it that all of these kids have been forced, essentially, to become addicted to 80s pop culture in order to win this game when that's not naturally what they'd be into? You're talking about pop culture in the movie that is 75 years old at that point. It's not their pop culture. None of the kids in this movie grew up on the 80s because the 80s were already distant history by the time they were born. It's forced on them. I think the most important thing in the middle set piece, and I'm going to talk carefully here, even though we'll set up some spoilers when we talk to the screenwriter Zach Penn later, but the middle set piece, there's a movie that it's based around, and that movie I think has a lot of subtextual meaning beyond just nostalgia. And I think it has subtextual meaning not only to the the person who makes the game in the film, but it has subtextual meaning to Spielberg. And I think the subtextual meaning to him and even the subtextual meaning to Ernie Klein adds an extra level of that's interesting and that's an interesting commentary. But again, there's there comes a point where the whole point of that puzzle is – it doesn't matter that it's not like the movie. Stop thinking about the movie and start paying attention to the question that's being asked. And that is totally different than the nostalgia that you're looking at. Could one of the points uh, be even even an accidental point would be the 80s is kind of a silly era to base your entire uh, you know world history on. Nobody wants to focus on that for exclusively. Um, but couldn't one of the points be. Hey, you know, you got to know your history, you know, make sure you do your homework. 
I just ultimately think the film is arguing that when you wrap yourself in this stuff to the exclusion of anything else, you are missing reality. You are missing life. You are missing so much else. And there are people... One of the reasons that I think the stuff that they had to license as many real things they did as they did is it's like when you're watching a movie and there's products on the table and they're having dinner and the products on the table have obviously been altered so that they they're the real product. But it's a slightly different name so that they don't have to pay somebody. Oh, you mean Flosted Rakes? Yeah, I, I hate that so fucking much. I mean, it sets my teeth on edge. You live in the real world. Just clear it just legally clear it and just put the real because that's the world we live in you have coca-cola and frosted flakes on your table that's reality and in reality on the internet you're going to have people who dress up like the iron giant and then run around and shoot things because they didn't get the movie you're going to have characters who are dressed like the ninja turtles standing next to dracula you're going to have all of that because you do look at the internet now that's what it is i think that is ultimately the real reason that they bought everything is because Otherwise, you would have to invent it, and the moment you start inventing it, you're you're spending your energy on that instead of on the story that you're trying to tell. I, I think it's a high-priced novelty movie, like Garbage Pail Kids movie. This, to me, is about video games and about pop culture, and just as far as eye-popping goes, I had a good time with it. I truly did. I thought it was a lot of fun. Didn't really stick on my ribs much, but once it hits Blu-ray, I'll see it again. It might go up a full star. It might go down a full star. But I I thought it was a decent, fun, entertaining movie. I see why some people have problems with it. And I also think that some of the complaints are a little absurd, frankly. It's a film where I think you carry a lot in the movie theater with you. And a lot of what you see on screen is going through glasses. And that's in every direction. I'm not just saying that about people who didn't like it. I'm saying that that film has a lot of baggage attached. Very true. Uh, if you were a, a 15-year-old kid and you wanted to kill two hours, uh, I would definitely recommend it. If you're a 45-year-old kid, uh, I would say probably. <laughs> Zach, thank you for doing this, man. My pleasure. It's it's a perfect fit because you have literally spent the last few years immersed in the world of 80s again. Just to be able to sort of sift through and decide what you guys were going to use, how do you even begin to sort down that, that large a toy box when you're looking at something like Ready Player One? I mean, there's two things. One is obviously what's available is key, and that limits us. Uh, not everything is gettable. You know, you get something like Ultraman where... There's a lawsuit between parties, so there's no even Steven Spielberg can't traverse yeah. that. But also, I, you know, really, I never approach this as how are we going to get all this stuff in here, and rather just let's tell the story and whatever fits. You know, if we have a bunch of guys running across the field firing guns, well, let's pick characters that fit for that. And if we are in a disco, let's fit characters that fit for it. You know what I mean? So. We started from let's make the best movie and then let's figure out, okay, if we're going to have a spaceship, what should it be? Well, and one of the things that I think is so so smart about the way the film handles the nostalgia is it doesn't feel like that is the driving force of the film. And I think a lot of people walked in afraid it would be or that that's what the marketing was. But the movie is ultimately that is gift wrapping on the outside of the film that you guys made. I just don't see that nostalgia itself is enough for a film. You guys wisely like bypass that very quickly. It's weird. You know, I feel like there is this assumption. I kept reading people saying, is this literally just going to be a thousand references in a row? And, you know, first of all, it's not the characters. I mean, basically the, the, the ships, the guns, the look of the different characters, they're just outfits. I mean, I I equated it to like looking at the trailer for Dunkirk and just saying, oh, my God, are they all going to be British soldiers? All those guys (laughs) in the beach are going to be British soldiers. How many British soldiers can we see and talk to? It's crazy. It just so happens in the Oasis, like in any video game, you know, you have random, you know, number of avatars that you're going to use. And people just got hooked on whatever it was we had licensed. But, you know, they're just background. It's it, it never really was that way. And frankly, yeah. even the nostalgia, you know, I'm trying to remember the analogy my wife used, but this, the nostalgia is literally like it, it, if half the characters were speaking French, this would be the French language stuff that they have to figure out. Or it's the you know what I mean? It, it's yeah. 
the 80s nostalgia is just the clues that are spoken about in the movie. They don't define the Oasis itself. And I don't think they do in the book either. You know, there's times where it's hard to tell because Wade is so consumed. But once you get into a third person, you know, the Oasis isn't built from 80s nostalgia. It's, it's you know, that's just a part of the contest. Right, just Halliday's particular fetish. And that's that's what I find interesting is that for a lot of the characters that are in Ready Player One, this is something that's not necessarily their nostalgia or anything they grew up with. It's like when my parents were watching stuff about the 50s and it was their nostalgia that then got secondhand passed down to me through American Graffiti and Happy Days and stuff. I'm not right. really connected to the 50s at all, but I'll be damned. I feel like I sort of am simply because so much of it was shown to me. And look, I also felt, you know, one one thing that I did adjust in my first rewrite was I just felt like there had to be varying levels that each of these different characters in the high five had to have different skill sets. And since Wade is clearly the one who is the most immersed in 80s nostalgia via Halliday, because by the way, Halliday is not into my favorite bands, you know, like he doesn't listen to the replacements nope. and he doesn't talk about you know, a lot of foreign films that I watched, um, it's very specific. And that is Wade's absolute, you know, that's his, that's his Zen mastery, if you will. Yeah. H, H is totally conversant in it and probably beat the pants off most people, but shouldn't be as good. They shouldn't all be as good as each other. You know, they should have different skills. So, and there's no way, how could show and Dido, given that they're, you know, everyone's going to have a different level of understanding of this. And some of them, it's going to be firsthand. And some of them, it's going to be through study. Well, one of the things that I really enjoy about doing this particular podcast is because we started at January 1980 and every episode, we just do one month and we just talk about the releases from that month. I feel like I'm living the decade again right now, parallel to the decade I'm actually living. And going back through, I'm starting to realize that it is true. 90% of what we talk about is just the surface, the very, very top of what we think of as the 80s. And there's so much of the pop culture that has been forgotten or marginalized, but that's really great. And the list you sent over of stuff you love from the decade that you don't hear talked about all the time, um, I love because it's exactly what we're trying to get to. And, you know, one of the movies we're doing on our next episode is on your list, and it's a film called Liquid Sky which I'm guessing there's vast chunks of our audience. They've never heard of it. They have no idea what it is. And even explaining it to them is going to be a jump. Um, what can you talk about? Cause you saw liquid sky theatrically. And then to me, that's one of those movies that is so of a time and place. Yeah. Well, first of all, in New York city in the late seventies, early eighties, and it really began with Rocky horror, you know, Rocky horror was a phenomenon in New York. Um, I remember even in third and fourth grade, kids from my class going to see it at midnight. It was a much more permissive era. It kind of begat this whole midnight screening as happening slash <laughs> totally inappropriate for kids kind of uh, thing that kids did. And Liquid Sky was the next one after Rocky Horror. Suddenly everyone started talking about this incredibly trippy film that had opened down, I believe at the Waverly um, called Liquid Sky. And so, you know, I went down late later than I was supposed to be out with a bunch of friends. Um, and we went and saw Liquid Sky. And, you know, it's one of those things where seeing it in a theater as a kid, and, you know, it's about heroin addiction and, and you know, uh, a woman who's also playing a man who it's difficult to tell, you know, what gender he or she is, uh, you know, and aliens. It was like a... and. You know, I remember, I don't know what year Brother from Another Planet was, but it seemed like someone who was really high had made their own version of that. Um, and and just like the whole thing was just disturbing. Uh, that's what I, that's kind of the way I remember. It was like disjointed and disturbing and representative of a downtown New York that even those of us traipsing through the village, we couldn't see that part of New York from the street corner, you know, the heroin taking alien mingling group of hipsters uh but they seem to be there so it it was weird it freaked people out i mean it really did uh it seems funny now like you know when i see it again you know i haven't seen it in years but when i did watch it again i was like wow i can't believe this ever seemed like trippy to me but it did 
And everyone thought Ann Carlisle was going to be a really big deal. That's what I remember, too. Yeah. When you look at it now and you look at Ann Carlisle's work playing both those characters, male and female, it seems like she's really ahead of the conversation that now is kind of happening in science fiction and stuff where people are starting to play more with that on film and androgyny and, and gender bending is part of the science fiction that we're starting to get. Um, but I don't think until the Wachowskis, anybody even flirted with that stuff mainstream. So Liquid Sky still feels very edgy and still feels kind of kind of wild. What I love about it and what I love about, you know, you getting to see it live in New York like, or see it in New York during its theatrical run, I I looked at that as New York as this other planet. And there's another documentary that's on your list, Decline and Fall of, the Western, of Western Civilization, part one where that to me was a scene that I knew I was never going to get to experience, but it felt like that was as close as I was ever going to get. And for me, a lot of 80s films, a lot of the ones I really valued and and hunted down and loved were films that gave me that peek into a lifestyle or a, a, a scene that I knew I wasn't going to get close to at all. Well, I can tell you as a New Yorker that one of the things that worked about Liquid Sky was we all were like, wait, where is this New York? We're like standing right on top of it and it's got to be around here someplace, you know, as opposed to Decline and Fall where, you know, I played in a punk band and we knew, you know, you knew where the punk clubs were and you knew where you could find punks. But Liquid Sky seemed like this secret world hidden inside New York that none of us really knew how to find, which which is, you know, because it was fictional, obviously, but um, there weren't aliens who sucked <laughs> the heroin-induced, you know, endorphins out of our head. But um, I remember also seeing, there's another movie called Alphabet City, I think, with Vincent Spano. Yeah. Uh, that I went to see for my birthday with a group of friends. And, you know, Alphabet City, <laughs> needless to say, was not a lot like the Alphabet City uh, portrayed in the film. But it was always a weird thing about New York. You know, the Warriors were the same way. Like you just, it was always getting depicted in ways where if you were a New Yorker, you're like, yeah, that's kind of like New York, but no, nobody dresses up in baseball uniforms and rides the subways like that. <laughs> so um, some of these are as theatrical experiences are, I feel like trying to explain it to someone now, like I love people's face when you tell them that when we went to go see Dune in the theater, they had to hand us a glossary before they let us go into the theater. That was one of those moments where you realize this movie is doomed and I might be in heaven right now. So it's that twin impulse of this is so, so completely for me and no one else is going to be on board. Yeah. You know, I don't remember getting a glossary in New York. I just remember thinking this is so trippy. I mean, Dune was after Elephant Man, right? I mean, yeah. Elephant Man, it's hard to explain why, but like, I really knew a lot about the Elephant Man. My dad had books about various things and I had read a lot about the Elephant Man. And I was obsessed when that came out. I was the same way. Like it, for some reason, just hooked me. Right. And so when, when I heard that the guy who did Elephant Man, which by the way, I think in some ways, I mean, I love David Lynch and I've, I've actually been watching David Lynch a lot for another project recently, but, uh, you know, Elephant Man is easily his most restrained and straightforward movie, even though it's in black and white and about a guy with a giant head. And, you know, it's really strange, but it's actually a very, very well-made, I mean, you know, Oscar-nominated movie. And I just thought, well, whatever that guy does next, I'm going to see it. And I don't even think I read Dune. My brother was a big fan of Dune. But I just remember seeing it and thinking, oh, my God, this has internal monologues in it this this is so weird like that giant thing you know the thing that folds space with spice as and, soon as the navigator scene is over you realize you have left whatever reservation you were on before because it is so out there it is and it was also epic like i found i think it was a brian eno who did the theme uh, i just you know i was a big bowie fan i mean i was about 14 or something at this point so to me, Dune was, even though I knew, yes, it had problems and it wasn't perfect, to me, it felt, holy shit, this is a totally different world this guy has created. It is nothing like anything else. You know, Sting felt a little bit out of place. But other than that, I mean, Kenneth McMillan gives one of the most underrated performances ever. Yeah, um, yeah well, that and, cast in general, he, he cast that thing with a murderer's row of amazing people. Yeah, and I just felt like, I, I don't know. I remember everybody hating on it when it 
out and I felt like that that is so much weirder and darker than anything I've seen in the same genre that it just was exciting. And I only felt that way more and more. I think Dune is one of those movies that each time I would get in an argument with someone about, you know, it was one of those movies that everybody just started saying it was terrible, um, which I've noticed is like a theme in my, in my career and in my life is uncovering things where everybody says it's terrible and maybe it isn't. Um, uh, you know, even today, like, you know, as Ready Player One comes out, remembering the reviews of Last Action Arrow saying it was terrible, a bloated, you know, bloated action movie with not a thought in its head and things like, I mean, the things that they said about Last Action Arrow are kind of funny in retrospect, like just another Hollywood blockbuster. It's like, really? And that's what they said. That's not where it came from with you. Yeah. And I think that's, I I see that a lot. And it's one of the things that I'm working as I continue to write criticism as I, this is, I don't know, 20th year of this. One of the things that I've really worked to try and do is get out of it. Me projecting onto any filmmaker, what they were doing. And I see so much of that. Like I, I saw somebody today talking about how cynical something was about ready player one. And I'm like, I guarantee that nobody walked into it. Just going, all right, quick, let's just cash some checks and go to lunch. Like, that's not how anybody approaches it. I mean, it's almost hilarious. Here's the funny thing. I think some people did look at Last Action that Hero that way, to be fair. But for the most part, both, you know, Ready Player One and certainly Dune, those are examples of people saying, okay, we're, this is a very difficult task. Let's throw ourselves into it. I mean, Steven Spielberg spent three straight years working on this movie. He could have probably made four other movies instead of this movie, given his output. Uh, He certainly could have cranked out two Indiana Jones movies and just sat on the pile of money that came in. Um, You know, none of us entered it for that reason. And if you know, Ernie is one of the least cynical people you'll ever meet. So, so, no, I I know. And and look, that's something I've even brought up with, you know, it does make me, you know, first it made me sad and now it's making me laugh. The idea that people think, oh, we'll just drag out these super obscure references to Harkonnen dropships because (laughs) that'll bring the crowds in, you know, as opposed to the Marvel movies I work on where it's like, oh, we'll just drag Iron Man in because that'll get the crowds in because that there's nothing that people were clamoring for in 2008, like Iron Man. Right. Um, (laughs) You guys, yeah, that was, and I, when I look back at at things that work that then in retrospect, people assume were safe bets. It's hilarious to me that you think it was safe because no matter how pre, you know, no matter how pre-existing an IP is, no matter how still, there is such a rock that you're pushing up a hill. And with ready player one, like you, there's a million ways this film falls apart. There's a million ways the wheels come off this thing completely. Totally. And, but, yeah. I've only worked on one movie that we knew was going to be successful from the, from 2006, we knew Avengers was going to be successful. I mean, we really did. We were like, as long as any of these movies hit and they work at all. And certainly once Iron Man came out, then it was a no brainer. It, that was the only time we just, it was just a debate of how big a hit it would be, you know? Yeah. And with ready player one, we always, you know, it's a, a very chancy proposition. Um, but you know, whatever, that's just, that's just the noise, as you know, that's just kind of the noise that rises around Mm -hmm. something, but, but I agree with you that frequently it's stuff that is less love that we get defensive about, you know, another movie on your list, everybody loves airplane and it's almost impossible to overstate how big a cultural phenomenon airplane was. If you weren't there in 1980, it was everywhere and it's all people talked about as far as comedy it's one of steven's favorite films by the way i mean it's everyone's favorite oh yeah it's a perfectly made film really but i adore top secret in a different way and i think it's because top secret is so weird as a concept who had the original i i get you're making fun of disaster movies and specifically the airport series but who said we're going to do a world war ii elvis musical and we're going to make it work as a spy. Mo- I, there's 50 right. things going on and they're all hilarious. I just showed it to my kids and I, 
what was weird was like it was kind of hard to tell if it was Cold War or World War. I mean, oh, their time frame is it. broken. It makes no sense whatsoever. And that's part of what's hilarious is that they're making yeah. 80s jokes, but it's the 50s and it's after World War II. And it's <laughs> and it's really it's a very strange movie. It's also um, a good I have a funny experience, which I saw Top Secret on 72nd Street with my mom uh, when it came out. Uh, the theater near my house. And my mom was laughing at all these other things that I, and you know, my parents really liked airplane as well, but she was laughing at all the German dialogue. And at one point I said, what's going on? She said, all of the German dialogue is Yiddish. And my mom <laughs> so she's like, yeah, he just called them donkey's balls and you know, whatever, like it's all. So all the German dialogue is Yiddish. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an underappreciated. It's also another great early Val Kilmer performance. Where oh my god, talking about a guy who hit the ground, just charisma turned up to eleven. Yeah, um, there's so many good jokes in that movie, and there's, I mean, you know, April Fourteenth, the Simchas Torah, you know, the whole thing about what the him totally misunderstanding what the German, you know, the desalinization idea. You know, he's like, that's enough salt for all the people in India. Like, <laughs> I, there's so many good things. Like, but I agree with you. And look, you you know this. We've known each other a long time. I love, first of all, I love kind of genre collision, you know, where yeah. where you kind of, a movie that seems to be in one genre collides into another. I mean, what's the John Woo movie? Is it, is it Bullet in the Head or something where they're like, it's a gangster movie and they drive into the Vietnam War? Yeah, um, it's Bullet in the Head. And it when it, ta- when it goes around that corner, it is one of the great left turns in film history where you're like, I wasn't watching that movie 10 minutes ago. I don't know what's... T- yeah. Absolutely. And and I just thought with Ready Player One, and boy, did it turn out to be true, that there were some opportunities here for really throwing the audience, you know, a left hook when they were expecting a right in terms of where the movie was going to go. And I think a lot of these 80s movies we're talking about, like... Top Secret is one where you just could never, you know, you couldn't guess that it was going to go into a parody of the Blue Lagoon all of a sudden. I mean, that was just not. And an extended one that then continues with him shirtless for 90% of the film, which is insane. It is. It's crazy. Um, Well, I love, and there's, there's a number of the films on this list that I are almost impossible to categorize. And I think that's something that runs through your work as far as things that interest you. Uh, Dead Ringers and Near Dark are both movies that I adore. And I think they're both haunting and beautiful. I don't, I don't exactly, I can't exactly tell you what it is about what I love about them because they're both so hard to get your hands around in some ways. Dead Ringers is one of the most unsettling things I've ever seen. Well, it's also, here's what, here's what's difficult about is that, Dead Ringers is a movie that is very difficult to classify in terms of, I mean, it's a Cronenberg film. And so that's a genre in itself. Right. And I Mm -hmm. I went to Wesleyan and there was a guy, uh, Joe Reed, who was a professor there who loved talking about genre on a kind of more heightened level. But I actually, some of my first writing partner really, uh, you know, then this is what led to last action era. We'd have lots of arguments about genre because to me, genre is useful when it really defines the story as opposed to anything where people are wearing cowboy hats as a, is a Western that right. to me is, is not, it might be helpful to a film historian, but not helpful as a writer. Right. Um, and Western Western can encounter, can encompass 400 other genres. And absolutely. You know, yeah. That's, I think that's, that's what makes it fun. Right. So dead ringers, what the hell genre is that in? Like biopic? <laughs> You know, my dad actually went, knew the Marcus twins growing up, who were the people who were the, you know, the brothers that it's based on. His his mom was always saying to him, why can't you be like the Marcus twins are so successful? Oh, my so, God. So there's a certain irony to that. But also, it's just such a weird movie because it's part horror movie, part body horror movie because it's Cronenberg. But it's also a prestige movie about that's kind of a biopic about two real people. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the hell it is, but it's also one of the great subtle performances in film history by, by Jeremy Irons. Um, so that's, that's really, really hard to classify. And then the second one you mentioned, um, 
Near Dark was, was great to actually sit in a theater for because I, I managed a theater when Near Dark came out. And that was one of those movies like Manhunter where it was playing to almost empty houses. And so I would walk in and just watch the people that showed up for it because I was so fascinated by the way it would land on them. And some people like Near Dark was a movie that upset some people like profoundly. Oh, well, for me and my friends, Near Dark was like the thing we were waiting for. Here's a horror movie about vampires, but it's funny and it feels real. You know, um, and obviously Bill Paxton, you know, became, uh, you know, someone who is I I was lucky enough to become friendly with him later in life. And so sad that he's gone. But he was in so many movies I loved back then. Obviously, Aliens was such a huge. Yeah, I got his chat and chat also. But like, you know, just every line from Aliens was so key for us. But Near Dark was a movie that was way, way ahead of its time tonally. Uh, and, and it's mashup of like, you know, outlaw, I don't want to call it, it's not like a biker movie, but it's definitely like a, a renegade outlaw movie, which there is a whole subgenre of, but with vampires and that spawned a lot. I mean, a lot came out of it. So, um, well, there's actors throughout the eighties that I, there's some actors who I identify almost exclusively with that decade because that's when they had their real moments and that has one of the great ones and that's jenny wright who for anybody who was of a certain age in the 80s jenny wright's like one of those haunting memories where she's in the 80s only and that's kind of her whole career yep and she was in that Uh, the funny thing is (laughs) um well first of all she was in the cameron crow uh the sequel i mean not the sequel but the next movie after which one was it? With I think with Christopher Penn. Right? Wildlife. Yeah, right. wildlife. wildlife. But I had such a weird... When I was 16, I went on a bike trip through Canada. I Don't ask me why, like, you know, as a New York City kid, how I ended up there. But I did with my best friend and a group of people. And we just... We were, we were kind of crazy. And I was always... People were always asking me if I was related to Sean Penn, which I'm not. And, you know, it always annoyed me. But I guess we were really drunk on the streets of Montreal and we saw uh, Nicolas Cage getting out of a limo with Jenny Wright. That was his girlfriend. And I just, I don't know why I had the balls, but I ran up and said, Nick, it's me, Zach, I'm Sean's cousin. I met you on the set of Racing with the Moon. I don't know where (laughs) I grew the balls to do that. But so I ended up, me and my really weird group of friends in Montreal ended up spending a night with Jenny Wright and Nick Cage in a club drinking underage. so she'll all, I've never seen her again since then. I don't know what happened to her, but, uh, but that was like a profound moment. In my child, oh I think God. that might've been part, partly what made me feel like I got to go to Hollywood, you know, that is awesome. And yeah, I, I love her almost more because it is, it's a moment where she just kind of vanished from film. And so those performances kind of exist as a, a time capsule. Um, Dude, uh, one of the last ones I want to talk about on your list, because I, I adore this, and when we got to talk about it again and I rewatched it, I fell in love again, is My Favorite Year. A perfect piece of a memoir as pop culture. Like The idea that they took that real story of Woody Allen and Mel Brooks and all those guys that started there and then turned it into that perfect version of that story. Man, does that thing work. Yeah. You know, it's my wife's single favorite movie. Um, she talks about it all the time, you know, for, for Jews growing up in New York, it was an inspiring movie. You know, it's kind of like a, a Jewish fantasy. Oh, Um, how great is the sequence where he brings Alan Swan home and all the relatives pile upstairs and he is dying with every word everybody says. Right. And and she wears her, his (laughs) aunt wears her wedding dress or something. Um, (laughs) Look, I I think you'd be hard pressed to find uh, Jews from New York who didn't. Uh, that sequence wasn't crucial for them. Um, you know, I, I believe it's like uh, our Goodfellas. I mean, actually, I guess a lot of Woody Allen Woody Allen films fit into that criteria. But but yeah, that to me is just an excellent. I mean, just it's it's kind of a high concept idea that yeah. you know that's been done. I mean, get him to the Greek is basically my favorite year with you know. A hip hop mogul, but um, yeah, it's just a perfect film, and it, it actually made me laugh. And it's a movie about comedy, which I thought was really interesting. And I and also I like movies that kind of, as you can guess, I like 
peeking behind the curtain a little bit. And it and, made it look like a job you could have. It really yeah. did make it look like something. Oh, you can do that. Right. You can write stuff. If you can write some funny stuff, maybe you can get a job doing it. Yeah. I mean, look, that, I think that's a movie that's great on a lot of levels. I mean, it's, it's obviously that movie does hold up well. I mean, that's an easy movie to watch yeah. now because it's very, you know, the structure of it's straightforward and it tells a very clear story and the jokes are kind of timeless. So, uh, you know, I don't have to prep my kids when I show them. I haven't showed them that yet, but I will soon. That's and that's let's let's end with that because you and I uh, we're the exact same age and raising Are we kids. Turn fifty. Uh, oh, okay. I, I'm a little younger then, but okay. yeah, I turned fifty on Friday, so I'm forty eight this uh, this May. So okay. it's kid. Uh, having kids right now and and sort of raising them with the amount of stuff that's available it's a radically different landscape than we had like we we were the first generation of video kids we were the first ones that were able to sort of fill in the gaps for ourselves and chase stuff down but it was still harder because not everything was available my kids have in their in the house 10,000 movies anything yeah. they're interested in they can find pretty much within about an hour i'm curious how do you with your kids help them figure out what it is that they're interested in because I don't know where to steer my kids, but I want them to be able to explore and to follow interests. You know, it's interesting. First of all, having grown up in New York when, when, um, you know, the VHS boom happened, there were so many video stores that had so many videos in them. We also were the first neighborhood with cable TV. So from the time I was like seven, there was porn on channel J. I mean, it was crazy. I remember just thinking, like, is this the way it's always been? <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> um, but so, so that actually gave me some really good training for my for raising kids in the 2010s or whatever we're in now. Um, I, I let my kids watch what they want to watch. You know, like I've we steer them away from R-rated movies when they're much younger. Obviously, um, we didn't want them. I mean, I had a friend who made us rent snuff when we were in. I don't know, ninth grade. And that was yeah. not a fun experience, which I would not, that's yeah. something, but I'm more worried about them seeing that not in a movie, but just randomly online. What I have done certainly with my kids who are not that into movies, by the way, and certainly not that into mine, not that into, they like more, you know, I try to get them to go see something I've written and they want to watch, you know, Selma again, or they want to watch uh, the imitation game. That's just their taste. Um, one of my kids is now I've been taking him through like, the classic, in my opinion, like the classic Spielberg, Cameron, Canon, if you will. Mm-hmm. So like we watched T2 recently uh, and they've gotten, and I think also they got to go, you know, one of the little sub stories of doing Ready Player One is that Steven uh, basically brought me to set for the entire production and brought my entire family to Europe. So my kids got to be on set for a, a lot of the movie and it, and listening to me talk about Spielberg and about his what makes him great and and watching a movie and pointing out, OK, this is what he does differently, got them a lot more interested in cinema than they had been before uh, in the art form. So but I, I don't I don't have any good advice in terms of steering kids because I kind of feel like, you know, my daughter found the TV shows that she likes to watch and then watches them religiously and has seen all of them. And, you know, as long as she gets her homework done, that's her call. Yeah. So. I, I really, one of the things that I've tried to do is when he, when Toshi's the one that's like really film crazy. And by the way, thank you for, he could not feel more excited about the fact that not only did he love Ernie's book, not only did he adore the movie, but there's a character named Toshiro and he actually looks like Mifune when he's in the, uh, yep. in the digital ver. Dude, he is as happy as he can be right now. I and, can only, I yeah. can only imagine. <laughs> but, um, but for him, like as he's been interested in stuff, the thing that I've tried to do is let him tell me what he's interested in, and then yes or no based on that. And like with horror, it took a long time for him to start to assert an interest, and I, I got it. I didn't want to make him uncomfortable with anything. But once he started asking, now, now it's like he wants all of it at the at one time, and it's getting him to take his time and watch stuff and not go like, not just burn through everything in a weekend. And it's interesting, like what he'll, what he'll ask for and then what his reactions are over spring break. He decided he wanted to see apocalypse now. And I was yeah, like, good. All call. right. 
all right, that's a big ask, but let's see what happens. And how old two is days, he? 13. Yeah, I mean, look, my I think that's, you know, it's weird. My kids have been like this past year. My son Xander, by the way, my son gets named, you know, finale Xander is partly a play off of his name. Um, awesome. I just need to think of a name quickly. So he's not as excited as Toshi is, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, for him, he just watched all the screeners. Like, you know, starting like the last two years, but particularly this year, he just said, all right, I'm going through all these. I'm going to watch, you know, actually, I guess it started last. He was like, I'm going to watch Moonlight. I'm going to watch La La Land. And I kind of felt like, go for it. You know, that's yeah. great. You're going to get a pretty diverse uh, group of movies there. I still can't really get him to watch like the X-Men movies or, you know, they're just not that into comic books or uh, I think maybe, you know, they like Ready Player One, but they were the last kids in their class to read Ready Player One. They didn't really have any mm-hmm. interest in it. So I have kind of the opposite problem, which is not slowing them down, but trying to convince. I mean, I can't even convince my daughter to watch Incident at Loch Ness and she's in it. So <laughs> uh, I don't know what to do. At that point. I did. I did take great satisfaction. I'm really glad, even though it took some of the surprise for me, I'm glad somebody tipped me off to The Shining because I got them to watch it the weekend before we saw Ready Player One. And I didn't tell them why. I just said, okay, you've been asking about this, so we're going to do it. And we did The Shining. So when the movie, when they got to that sequence in Ready Player One and they're outside the Overlook, my 10-year-old shot up out of his chair and could not sit down again because he realized what he was about to see. And it was such a delightful moment of recognition. It's the one thing where I would really encourage people, if you don't know that movie, it's going to be so much better if you do. It really does pay off in a beautiful way. It it is weird how, like, you know, I, I kind of thought, you know, I said to my wife so many times, I don't understand. People are going to shit themselves when they see this scene. They, it hurts my head, they, Zach. I don't get know. it. I don't get what I'm looking at. It's so right. Well, by the way, it's also the level of complexity in creating that sequence. Stephen has kind of forbade us from talking about it because he's like, don't show him how the sausage made. Yeah. But that was easily... If that looks complicated, it's because it is. And and obviously, some of the, as you can tell, some of it is footage from The Shining. I mean, some of it is. It has to be because no, it's, it is. It is. <laughs> well, right. Well, some of it literally is. It's just the way ILM manipulated our characters into it and how they integrated them. But then there's all sorts of other things going on and all sorts of tricks. And, and it's a super complicated sequence. But you know, it's something that I felt it's funny, by the way, I look, it's we're talking the weekend the movie came out and it's doing very well and people have been incredibly generous about it. But it is also funny, like, you know, I've read a number of reviews that talk about like fun, not much on its mind, but a fun movie. And I'm just like, what? Not much on its mind. There's so much stuff going on in this movie, like just the shining alone how could you how could you yeah. lump us in with half the movies I've written that people say had a lot on their mind that were just like, what would be a cool thing to do with the X-Men? You know, um, or what's the what's the next cool fight scene? We I mean, you know, there's movies that have nothing on their mind. This oh, is in, not in five of- in five years. We're going to be reading term papers about this be- or, or uh, like actual like, so. theses about this because that sequence is. It's a, I, I kind of feel like your whole movie is in that sequence. Well, it is. I mean, one of the big one of the big breakthroughs for Ernie and I, you know, and, and Ernie and I, you know, obviously we we are hired separately. You know, he wrote the book and I had to write a draft. But we as production went on, we got we were already friendly from, you know, from in uh, Atari Game Over from the documentary I did that he kind of is mm-hmm. one of the stars of. But it's also that as you know, that sequence in particular was something that he and I really had to crack together. I mean, that was one where I was got to come to set. It was funny. Like I was convincing. I was like, Ernie, come on, you got to come back to set. And he's like, well, you know, it's really hard to get over to England. And I was like, you got to, it's crazy that I'm sitting, I'm the writer and I'm sitting here convincing the other writer, you know, to come out to set, but I need you because this sequence can't just be a fun house version of the shining it's got to encompass the whole point of the movie and and to me for us our big revelation was certainly is obviously the notion that here is a sequence where the person who wrote first of all the weirdness of it's about the person who wrote it 
being unhappy with the adaptation of it, which Ernie was obviously not unhappy. He was happy, but was dealing with all of those issues. But more importantly, and it kind of gets lost in all the tittering when you're watching in the theater, is that it's a sequence about about the failure of complete nerd nostalgia. You know, like that basically it's Artemis saying, look, it's not about knowing The Shining, clearly. Clearly, Halliday is trying to send us a message saying, it's, this is, if you just know The Shining, if all you're going to do is recite everything you know about this movie, you're going to die. So we have to figure out not what, that's all like a, a trick to distract your attention. The question is, what is the real meaning beneath it? And to me, that is one thing that the movie I do think does very well and that Stephen was very focused on, and it's very different from what people's... I mean, that's why I kind of laughed when I read people thinking, like, it's just going to be a bunch of cameos. I mean, at times, Marvel movies, you know, you you kind of end up having to be... It's like, here's a bunch of cameos. You know, here mm-hmm. comes the next superhero, you need to see. This is kind of the opposite. I mean, kind of the point of it is all of that knowledge that you've accumulated and all of that kind of, you know the kind of specificity uh, and and the shining is such a hotbed of that, you know, with room two, three, seven and all sorts of other crazy conspiracy theories around it. The idea that it's like, guess what? We don't care. That's not, that's not the point. The point isn't, can you recite the lines from it? Or do you know all the details? That's actually going to distract you. You've got to see past that. Um, So it's one of the reasons that I, I do think that that sequence is, not just a great set piece, but is the heart of the film. And it's, and look, it's, it's why I ended up giving myself over to the movie completely because I realized you guys were looking past all the window dressing. And that is everything that we're encouraging people to do with this podcast, look past the idea of the eighties as this thing that is in a box and is simple and digestible. And, and it was 10 years of film. There's so much that happened and you can't do it all in two hours or in one dose or even in one nostalgic thing. It's I I think that the point that your film ultimately makes about all this is that if those things still work or if they have any power or if they have any life beyond what they beyond the value in that game, it's because they mean something human. And I, I love that you guys kind of cut through all that. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, I always use the analogy of, You know, when I was a kid, like what's hard for people to understand now is that when we were kids, you know, video games or going to see a Steven Spielberg movie or a genre movie or, you know, any of these things were considered to be frivolous. I mean, my parents used to, they'd say, why are you reading these X-Men comic books? Why don't you read a real book? And I'd say, no, 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 these are really, you don't understand. This isn't like Richie Rich or something. There's something really interesting here. And Pop culture was denigrated as being, you know, junk culture. And that applied to music as well, by the way. I think that, you know, a lot of music that, you know, our parents at the time thought was just crappy music was actually incredibly complicated music and and withstood the test of time. So when I got to Hollywood, I definitely, I felt like I was still stuck in this world where people thought a comic book movie was the same as a cartoon movie, you know? That, that there was very little difference between them. And I just thought, no, comic books are a lot more intelligent than, frankly, comic books are often have a more going on in them than a lot of novel adaptations do, you know, where it, it, the subject matter might seem important, but it's a pretty surface examination of it. Whereas a comic book might seem very surface, but it's actually about incredibly dark and deep issues. So, and that's, that's something that I think from the beginning, one of the reasons I ever started writing for Ain't It Cool or any of that was because there was a culture that was important to me that I didn't feel had the right value or the right placement. And there were a few critics, you know, Kale, I always thought with her defense of De Palma and the way she would argue why he was important or mattered. Um, she certainly had her exploitation guys or the guys who were on the fringe that she pushed and enjoyed, but I felt like there was a lot of what I loved and knew had value that had been marginalized. And a lot of my early writing is simply a case of trying to set a context and say, no, no, John Millius's Conan the Barbarian is actually awesome. And here's why. And it's not just a junky sword and sandal movie. Right. It's not just relatively awesome compared to other. It's actually quite a bit better than some sword and sandal movie that might have gotten nominated for an Oscar, but really is yeah. just a straightforward 
I mean, look, I, you know, that's obviously my whole career in Hollywood. I would say that certainly Last Action Hero was always intended to be a, you know, a pretty difficult meta, you know, take, you know, at the same time that we were trying to do something that would be exciting and filled with wish fulfillment, we also wanted it to be a comment on the movies that we were making and about what's wrong with, you know, what's wrong with them as well as yeah. what's right with them. And, you know, quite often I, I keep coming back to that kind of thing, you know, over and over again. Uh, and I do think it's being, that is a direct result of being a child of the eighties. And I, I do think, Look, I think it's something that's slightly different between me and Ernie. You know, Ernie's a big fan of the last action era, which is helpful. But, you know, I do think Ernie is a more, he is a more genuine, uncynical enthusiast. You know, like he is a person who loves so much stuff that, whereas I'm a much more cynical bastard, you know, who grew up in New York. But, and and to me, part of it is just drawing, trying to say, look, there's depth here. You're just not seeing it, you know? And, uh, cause I, I get, I get so tired in Hollywood and I, I won't give any specific examples, but I get so frustrated when people attribute depth to something because it's dealing with a deep subject, you know, or it's dealing with deep subject matter, even when it has absolutely nothing to say about it. Yeah. It's just like, you know, death is really difficult for people. And here's my completely trite movie about somebody dying. Give me the movie that's about a guy wearing a loincloth, you know, fighting off dragons that actually has a whole bunch to say about, you know, the world. Uh, you know, to me, that's a lot more interesting. So, uh, but I do think it's a product of that. And I think that what's happened is that as a result, there's a lot of people who've grown up in a different culture than us where to them, all this geek nerd stuff is already venerated and is already, you know, uh, to them, they don't see what our generation is complaining about because to them, that's what they're overwhelmed with constantly. Yeah. And I get that. I, you know, I understand like to them, they don't see the, the protest that comic book movies don't have to be stupid. Seems like a stupid protest at this point. Um, so you know, I, and I, there's a wave of that, that I'm understanding of, although I feel like they don't quite, God, it's weird, isn't it? We're sounding like old men now, but <laughs> they, they don't quite get where we're coming from, where it's like, yeah, you know, there's a time at which people didn't recognize Steven Spielberg for the director he was, Yeah, you know, where they thought, oh, he's a great popcorn filmmaker. And I was just like, what? Have you seen Close Encounters? It's not a popcorn movie. That's like one of the darkest movies I've ever seen. The yeah. guy gives up on his family, you know, like he, he leaves earth at the end and abandons his children. That's not popcorn. Um, but, but, you know, now he's become, now you don't, you're, you're arguing with nobody if you say he's a great filmmaker. So I could see how that would grow tiring for, you know, those, the kids these days, you know, with their, with their Pokemon. Um, well, I, I really, I think, uh, I think you guys did a hero's job in bringing this thing to the screen. And I think it is a ferociously difficult thing you set out to do. Um, and thank you for, uh, for sitting down today because I do, I, I, it's nice to talk to somebody who was there and saw these films theatrically and kind of has these memories of the way they landed on us because they, they have become set in stone and, I, I think for a lot of us that live through it, they're still very much alive and these films are important and they, they matter. So yeah, thanks, man. No, uh, no, my pleasure. And obviously, you know, between Atari game over and, you know, I'm not a good enough musician to comment, uh, but I feel the same way about the music. Like, you know, there's a lot of stuff from the eighties that, you know, we don't talk about a lot, yeah. but I mean, look, David Lynch, we didn't even get to it, but the last thing I'll say is, I, you know, when you look back when, and I've watched a lot of David Lynch recently, when you watch wild at heart and particularly blue velvet, you realize so much of what came in the nineties and so much of even what's done now is that kind of mixture of violence and Americana and, and kind of a stylization that is hard to identify. I mean, there's obviously the Quentin Tarantino, you know, connection, but it, it's just, it's something that's like, 
I sometimes find myself having to remind people, yeah, that that happened 25 years ago when David Lynch did, you know, X or Y. But um, anyway, um, well, good. It was my pleasure to talk. And uh, it's my favorite project. So sir, um, take care. And um, I uh, do you have something coming up after Ready Player One that you can talk about? Or is it just Ready Player One's now now and then there's more stuff later? Well, I'm working on a Matrix uh, movie for Warner Brothers, so I'm writing a script for that, which you know is in that state where if if I do an awesome job, maybe they'll make another Matrix movie. So I don't want to get you know ahead of myself. And I I'm, am excited to hear that. Yeah, I mean that's really a whole that's a whole other podcast. Um, but but that's just something I truly believe in. Like that was me bothering them because I just felt like this. I don't want to see this universe go away, and this yeah, is look not what you built. Please don't, please don't not do anything. It's so good what you built. There's this lovely thing you own. Yeah. So, so exactly. And, and it doesn't, it's actually universe rather than, Hey, we bought, you know, Big Pen as a, <laughs> a, a property and we're doing big, the Big Pen universe with all the different pens in it. I'm, um, I can't wait to see what the Gillette production company looks like. Uh, they're yeah, what their I am logo is. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's only the three bladed. Uh, razors. Um, no, I'm working on that. I'm working on ROM, um, which is another 80. It's really started in 79, but another yeah. 80 comic book that I always wanted to do. And yeah, I got a few other tricks up my sleeve, but I've learned not to talk about too much about them until they're actually real. So awesome. Um, well, sir, I, uh, I look forward to all of them and thanks. Thank you, Drew. Take, Take care. care. Bye.